0: Uh, Good evening to you all and welcome to another uh, Ralph Miliband lecture in the series on the restructuring of world power. And I'm delighted this evening to welcome George Magnus, author of this new book called, great title, Uprising, Will Emerging Markets Shape or Shake the World Economy? Of course, he should be talking now about North Africa, where there is real uprising, of course, uh, going on. George Magnus is Senior Economic Advisor to UBS Investment Bank London, he has been, had a long and successful career in the financial service industry, having worked with, among others, Lloyds, the Bank of America, the UK uh, stockbroker Laurie Milbank, merchant bank SG Warburg, and then UBS. He was the chief e- economist at UBS from 1995 until 2005, 10 years. He received an MSc in economics from SOAS and has taught economics itself both in London and in the United States, at the University of Illinois. He has written extensively for UBS and in the media on the financial and economic crisis and what it signals for the future of our economies. George is unusually prolific, I think, from someone uh, with his background and career. He's written a a number of very successful books. Let me just mention um, uh, The Age of Aging. How Demographics Are Changing the Global Economy in Our World, which was published in just a little while ago, in October 2008. And of course, he is now the author of this new book, Uprising, which is here. And I should point out, available for you to purchase outside afterwards. And George will be signing copies, should any of you want both a, a copy and his signature. So at about eight o'clock, George will move outside to to welcome you, uh, 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 if you wish to um, Purchase a copy and get him to autograph it. This lecture this evening explores the themes of this new work, um, uh, and which are to some extent and basically about the ways in which the rise of Asia um, is consistent with the world order as we know it and have known it since 1945, or represents a fundamental and profound challenge to that world order and, above all, the hegemony of the West and particularly the United States of America. I'm sure he will give both an engaging, um, humorous, and controversial set of arguments. So please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Uh,
1: thank you very much, uh, David, and a very good evening to all of you. Um, I was quite amused, actually, just to see the notes on the table here, that about, which are a guide to chairing public meetings in the event of disorder. So uh, <clears throat> if you want to have your uprising, can we leave it until later? Thanks very much. Uh, well, it's obviously a great privilege for me to uh, to come and talk in this series on um, restructuring of world power, uh, obviously aptly titled In View of uh, Developments Playing Out in Egypt <clears throat> and, of course, the growing complexity of, of international relations, um, especially in the continuing aftershock of uh, the financial crisis. I, I talk with some humility about this, not only given the weightiness of the issues involved, um, um, but, but I would nevertheless like to talk about some of these key political and economic issues which face China and other majoring, major emerging countries in the wake of the crisis, which is really what uprising is about. Um, and I use the term deliberately to convey the idea that what we're witnessing is something that goes far beyond simple economic catching up. Uh, In other words, some sort of restructuring of the global system clearly is going on in the wake of the crisis, or accelerated by it, Um, but unfortunately all the major participants seem to be looking inward and eager to draw lines of protection between insiders in the country and outsiders in terms of other countries, Um, and I, I thought that this transition to whatever it is that we're going to was never going to be seamless or linear. As often people in my profession, certainly in my industry, uh, and many other commentators uh, sometimes self-servingly choose to assert, I think trouble and turbulence were and are inevitable unfortunately. So uprising really is about how the crisis has shocked the West into an uncertain period uh, in which debt is going to have to be destroyed uh, and restructured. With luck, we may not end up like Japan, with 20 years of stagnation, uh, but it will take a lot of political will uh, to ensure that that's the case, and social cohesion, I might add. Um, But the other major uh, catalyst or catalytic effect, I think, of the crisis has been to, as I said, accelerate the great economic convergence between East and West in a mirror image of what we all understand to be a trend uh, of the last 250 years. So when I ask the question about whether emerging markets will shape or shake the world economy, I'm basically saying that the great convergence will undoubtedly shape the world and most probably in many ways for the better, but that the path uh, depends on the willingness and ability of major emerging countries to also undergo significant economic change in the ways or change in the ways that they interact both with regards to other countries and with regards to their own citizens. Uh, and if they can't do that, or run into uh, uh, obstacles in doing that, there will, to quote Jerry Lee Lewis, be a whole lot of shaking going on, and hopefully you know, we'll be able to keep that at bay. So uprising really is about regime change. It emphasizes excitement at new uh, commercial and business opportunities um, in emerging countries and for their citizens. Um, excitement of these countries becoming better off, uh, but also it emphasizes great uncertainty as the United States and China, as the world's biggest economies and specifically the world's biggest debtor and creditor countries respectively, maneuver, cooperate and confront each other, drawing in Europe and other major emerging countries to establish some sort of new global system. In the process, uh, I just think we should be aware that the exciting things that underline the case for economic convergence and progress also create forces which undermine it. In the West, for example, the last 20 years of convergence have brought huge economic benefits. They also brought us the biggest crisis since the 1930s and a growing social and political threat based around income inequality and insecurity. Uh, and, of course, intolerable levels of public debt. So the underlining and the undermining kind of go hand in hand. In China, uh, they've produced a four-fold rise in per capita income to about $4,000, but have also produced an exceptionally unbalanced economy, unbalanced by any emerging market standard in the last 200 years, rising inflation, and a restructuring agenda that's going to be economically difficult and, in some respects, politically quite risky. So much of what I'd like to discuss this evening then is about the structural issues that China and others face from now on, uh, and why they have to meet them head on or risk uh, instability, uh, perhaps even turbulence. So recent developments obviously in Egypt and the rest of the Middle East, a testament not only to the consequences of repressive government and corruption, but also to the catalytic political effects of economic shocks. In this particular case, the rise in basic food prices uh, which may well be a problem to which there is no easy or imminent solution. So my profession uh, can often help us to understand some of the implications of economic significance. So we cite and explore often uh, what the implications are of the world's next billion consumers are uh, based on population growth, urbanisation, rising incomes per head. Uh, the next billion consumers stalking uh, the shopping malls of um, emerging market cities. We look, um, uh, sometimes with great admiration, actually now, at the growing number of companies headquartered in emerging countries, uh, with profits growing three times as quickly as those of the S&P 500 or FTSE 100 companies. Uh, These companies uh, already account for about 20% of the Fortune 500, and a gradually rising share of foreign direct investment. Uh, We look at the consequences of steady technological improvements in, for example, information, energy and low-carbon industries, and even in China, actually, in new nanotechnologies, which experts think could be worth about $2.5 trillion by 2015, that they'll revolutionize the manufacturing, everything from audio speakers to body armor, and possibly represent the first modern technology in which the pioneers come from outside of the Western Hemisphere. Having said all that, uh, the economic models and spreadsheets we deploy uh, have major limitations. So, for example, if you were armed with economic information at the time, you might have been able to predict in 1900, uh, certainly by the 1920s, that the emerging US economic behemoth would one day rule the global economy. But who could have envisaged uh, the events leading to that outcome? And we shouldn't forget that some very confident predictions based based around economic information of the time have also come to grief over very short periods of time. Various points in the last hundred years, people have confidently asserted that Germany, the former Soviet Union, and most recently Japan would come to dominate the global economic system. But things worked out rather differently. So simply put, there are more important things than GDP forecasting and accounting to look at when trying to predict and understand what's going on. What you need, in my opinion, is what we would nowadays call a killer app, killer application to sustain economic, successful economic development and I think that's about good government and high quality institutions that enable capital accumulation, innovation. And social cohesion to occur. So, when I talk about institutions, I'm referring really to the legal system, in particular to neutral contract enforcement, an independent judiciary. I'm referring to sound political governance, effective labor, economic and social organizations, and an innovative and transformational corporate culture. Properly developed and applied, it's these things that turn labor and human and physical capital into the magic potion that we measure, we don't really measure it, we assume it's there, called total factor productivity. The Fraser Institute in Canada, for example, has been publishing for some time an economic freedom of the world index based on five series of complex measures spanning the size and scope of government, the legal structure and protection of property rights, access to and conduct of sound money policies, trade and capital account restraints and restrictions, and the regulatory environment in credit, labour markets and business. And in its 2010 report, the strongest group in their 141 country universe includes Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand, Switzerland and Chile and the weakest include Zimbabwe, Myanmar, Angola, Venezuela, and the Republic of Congo. But in this list, China ranks 82nd, just behind India and Brazil, but ahead of uh, Turkey and Mexico. To get an idea about why these rankings matter, you could also look at at a recent INSEAD Business School report, which demonstrated that poor countries can grow quite rapidly for uh, some time even if they have weak institutions. So if you're relatively backward in economic terms, it's a condition that can be ameliorated by even simple improvements in governance, investment and even minor, relatively minor advances in education and public health. But the richer you come, the richer you become, the more you have to pay attention to how your development model works. And they say that once you start knocking on the door of per capita incomes of about ten dollars to $12,000, sustained economic progress depends on stronger and better quality institutions that enhance the quality and organization of labor and capital on the one hand and embed trust and confidence on the others, signs of the needs of a modern society. In their absence, economies may then tend to stagnate or even regress. So I looked at a couple, actually, in that vein, um, noting that, actually, the former Soviet Union uh, bumped into this wall of about $12,000 in about the early 1980s, after which, obviously, it descended very, very rapidly, um, and it's only just kind of Russia is now kind of getting back to those kinds of levels. And if you look at another, um, what of people often call errant country, Venezuela made uh, very rapid progress to achieve per capita income of between eight dollars and $10,000, um, in the 80s and the early 90s but it actually has gone nowhere since um, and effectively has reached its kind of plateau, at least for the time being, notwithstanding what's happened to uh, oil and gas prices uh, More if you look historically, the success of Britain, America, other western U- uh, Western countries in the last 200 years, it's kind of self-evident um, doesn't need any kind of explanation from me here, other than to note that historians um, record that actually none of it probably would have happened without the enabling effects of an appropriate institutional, economic, legal and commercial infrastructure. More recent developments, for example, if you look at the performance of Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries versus Latin American countries since the 1970s, which were at that time joined at the hip in terms of economic development, educational attainment, uh, per capita GDP, uh, various other kinds of social measures, I think this also speaks to, or their performance subsequently speaks to the much better developed and stronger institutions that were developed in Asia, Southeast Asia, to harness and exploit the causes of economic growth. Um, so you could also look more recently, for example, at the comparative performance of China and India, uh, let's say over the last 20 years, uh, which also uh, clearly have very, very strong institutional, uh, a strong institutional wedge between them. As indeed, if you look at the performance of Brazil, uh, not just under President Lula, but actually before that, it really started under President Cardoso, uh, with significant changes in the way in which the government approached such issues as educational reform, in- uh, income inequality and, um, and fiscal governance. In China, the impressive and incredibly fast jump from $1,000 to about $4,000 of income per head has gone hand in hand with key institutional advances. In the functionality of the state, the development of state-owned enterprises, the beginning of the rise of global companies and the resources ploughed into education, R&D, product development, lately, for example, in consumer, low-carbon, clean air and alternative energy technologies. Yet, even though China is probably now on course to reach about $13,000 per capita by 2020, things probably can't carry on as they are. State enterprises and local government infrastructure initiatives thrive on underpriced capital, easy credit, and a repressed exchange rate. They lack the organizational (coughs) and management skills evident in the very top global companies, and they don't have programs really for managing diversity and disruption. Changing these phenomena will require a new round of comprehensive reforms that are likely to prove politically challenging. You don't have to be pigeonholed as a China basher to insist on the importance of political will and high quality institutions for future success. So you look at the case of technology, it illustrates the case about institutions very well. No longer are emerging countries assumed to be simply a global reservoir of cheap labor and low cost brains. (coughs) The transformational effects of the internet, mobile phones, wireless technologies, very well-known, widely documented, and the BRIC economies have become key players in modern automobile engineering, energy exploration and development, information, bio, technologies, and so on. And apart from South Korea, which is obviously an OECD country, other countries that would qualify as high achievers would be Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Mexico, and Turkey. But to be a top dog in technology and a leader in innovation, you have to have high-quality and flexible institutions uh, that are tolerant and actually nurture disruptive change. The World Bank, for example, has noted that emerging countries face a range of constraints embedded in their political and legal institutions that hinder broad-based innovation. I've just referred to one or two in China's case, but the World Bank broadens this out and says that they include, in general, weak incentives for transformational entrepreneurship, Quantity and quality uh, and access constraints to post-school secondary education, research and university facilities that lag a long way behind Western institutions, low levels of development in financial and risk capital markets, and an array of discriminatory policies involving procurement, information security, intellectual property rights protection and fiscal incentives. Some of these weaknesses, obviously, are not cast in stone. They clearly can be strengthened and improved. And recently, for example, the end of last year, the 21st session of the US-China Joint Commission on Commerce and Trade is pretty low profile, very cumbersome to say, but actually, it's a pretty low profile institution as part of the great dialogue between the two countries. But they did achieve uh, some success, actually, in, uh, with China agreeing to stronger enforcement of IP rights, purchases of legal software, Uh, some softening in its indigenous innovation programs and improved market access for US companies in specific sectors. But sometimes it's very difficult to disentangle uh, in real progress in these matters from the window dressing and tweaking that often characterise sovereign relations. Personally I am somewhat sceptical that China and the US for that matter are making enough progress on the issues of mutual interest Um, to offset the lack of progress in addressing the issues that divide them, including those areas related to broad uh, corporate governance, um, which actually matter much more to Western companies than the much-touted value of the RMB, which I think is a rather overstated, uh, although very symbolic, phenomenon. At least for the moment, I think the tone of U.S.-China relations, witnessed the recent state visit by Hu Jintao to President Obama, looks to have picked up at least a bit, Uh, And it helps, of course, that economic growth is rising again in the U.S., however temporary that might be, Uh, and certainly that output in China and other developing Asia is surging. In fact, in China, industrial production is now more than 20% higher than it was before the peak, uh, the previous peak before the crisis happened. Um, And China's GDP, as I'm sure many of you are aware, is still tearing along at about 9-10% per annum. But I can see two reasons why this state of affairs will probably not continue for all that much longer. Uh, The first has to do with rising inflation, and the second has to do with the need for economic rebalancing. The world economy, I think, is now characterized by sharply diverging credit cycles in emerging and developed markets, with emerging markets increasingly the focus of concern uh, vis-à-vis asset bubbles and rising inflation. It's certainly the case in China where a credit boom, property market inflation, negative or low real interest rates and a repressed exchange rate bear many resemblances to those of Japan in the 1980s. In fact, one of the things that bothers me really about the course of economic policy on which China is now set is that it does resemble uh, in many ways the same kind of psychology That characterized creditor nations in the past when the global system has been stressed. So if you think about America in the 1920s and you think about Japan in the 1980s, here we have uh, two what were then very strong, uh, widely canvassed, you know, economic giants of the time uh, that basically could never reconcile the competing objectives about how they were to tackle domestic monetary policy and hold down domestic inflation and their international obligations to protect or support arrangements at the time. So obviously America's problem in the 1920s was a monetary policy that was too easy for the domestic economy but fitted the gold standard which the Americans joined after World War I. In Japan's case in the 1980s uh, the mercantilist model that was being pursued at that time, probably still is actually, but at that time certainly predisposed Japan to repressed exchange rates and repressed interest rates, and um, each time the Bank of Japan wanted to raise its interest rates and try to control asset price inflation, the Minister of Finance would overrule them, and of course that didn't. none of that really changed until a. the uh, Plaza Accord in 1985. And then, uh, actually, monetary policy, nothing really changed until 1988. By that time, of course, it was too late. And so it does bother me, actually, that, I mean, China can still veer off this path. But right now, I think it is treading down a very, very similar uh, route. So the issue for me, actually, is quite clear. Uh, I mean, there is an inflation problem there. Uh, the outcome, of course, is completely uh, in the lap of the gods. And it's pure conjecture whether the People's Bank of China will be given the mandate. Remember, People's Bank of China is a subsidiary agency to the State Council. Whether the PBC will be given the mandate to put the inflation genie back in the bottle quickly and decisively, or whether the task will be deferred until the leadership change, or after the leadership change in 2012. So interest rates have been raised three times now, twice at the end of last year and once uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, there have been seven increases in bank reserve requirements uh, since January of 2010. Uh, the government has taken action to curb real estate price inflation, including a few weeks ago introducing pilot property tax schemes in Shanghai and Chongqing. Uh, they've taken action to restrain food prices to try and control lending by individual banks. And most people seem to agree that more restraint will be needed in 2011-2011 to lower inflation and credit expansion over the medium term, but the task, I think, is much bigger than they think it is. Compared with the end of 2008, for example, when Lehman's went bust, China's M2 version of the money supply and the stock of bank credit are about 60% higher, and while underlying growth rates in money and credit have slipped from where they were in the immediate quarters after the crisis. They're still running far in excess of China's nominal GDP growth, which is about 12%, 13% per annum. In fact, China's N2 version of the money supply is bigger than it is in the United States, despite the fact that America's economy is three times as big. Okay, you might say that's an unfair comparison, and that in the United States, with sophisticated capital markets and not so sophisticated shadow banking uh, organizations, Uh, that you ought to add those non-bank liabilities onto the version of the money supply, which is true to point that out. But it's also true to point out that the preponderance of cash and bank credit in China is totally in keeping with a country with less mature financial markets, and also therefore underscores the potential for higher inflation. If you think also about what's happening to Chinese wages, you might be persuaded that actually they do really have a problem. So wages are now running at about 20 percent certainly rural wages and minimum wages are rising at about 20 percent for the third year consecutively partly encouraged by the government which is pulling them up as part of economic rebalancing but also because china's demographics and extraordinary gender imbalance are starting to push up the price of labor from below so for 20 years wages have grown significantly more slowly than the economy so that the share of wages in national income has fallen from 55 to about 40%, while the share of profits obviously went the other way, from about 19 to about 32%. Whatever China's productivity growth was, and it certainly has been very high, the benefits of productivity growth have accrued in the main to Chinese companies. I think it's fair to say now that from now onwards, wages are going to grow much faster than GDP, uh, so that by 2020, the wage share in national income could be about 10 percentage points higher again, Workers and household consumption will clearly benefit from this but China will become increasingly susceptible to higher inflation. So the key issue, I think, for China's leaders is how to get the balance right between restraining inflation and sustaining economic growth so that citizens don't get spooked either by too much inflation or too little growth. A more radical approach to interest rate management and to or the use of interest rates and a more flexible exchange rate would be exceptionally timely, but the economic and political consequences of doing so make it rather naive to think that there'll be a big policy shift any time soon. And even if there were, I suspect that the institutions will probably back off, particularly before the leadership change next year. Anyway, no one is going to want to preside over what could be rather untoward developments in the property market and by implication for China's middle class uh, before the political change of 2012. Apart from inflation, the other main reason why the status quo won't last in my view is because of the complex relationship between, as i indicated just before, China the creditor and America the debtor. The the nature of that relationship seems irresolvable at the moment. In a complex global system with highly integrated financial markets, vertically integrated supply chains, you can't have a shock in one part of the system without generating a shock elsewhere or disruption. And since the U.S. is the world's biggest debtor and has been shocked into what I believe still will be a decade of deleveraging and saving more, the world system will only work without stress if China saves less. Otherwise, the whole global system could sink to a slump amid a rising chorus of protectionism. Unfortunately, despite the confident and assertive language of successive G20 communiques which shun protectionism, there have been literally hundreds of incidents of trade, currency, capital account, and corporate protectionism since the financial crisis, reminding us that this wretched problem of global imbalances, uh, which makes most people yawn, but I'm sure that you're fully conversant with the issues, uh, that the fingerprints of, this, uh, of, the, of these things were found at the scene of the financial crisis, and this problem is still very, very much alive and well the improvement in the U.S. external deficit has stalled, the public deficit has risen to offset it, and in China's case the trade surplus decline has been reversed with the recovery of exports. So it's basically back to the good old bad ways uh, that characterized the world before 2007. In fact, the managing director of the IMF, Dominic, Dominic Strauss-Kahn, who speeches I don't normally kind of herald, uh, did uh, make quite a trenchant speech in Singapore about uh, 10 days ago where he of course welcomed the global economic recovery but cautioned that it was structure was flawed in other words too reliant on western consumer demand and too reliant on Chinese exports uh, and failing to address both global trade and savings imbalances and local imbalances in the form of income inequality um, it's quite a thing for the managing director of the IMF to say but he is running for the or probably will run for the presidency of France soon so maybe that explains that Um, Anyway, I think this is why and sums up the reason why China, too, needs to restructure. Uh, These global trade imbalances, as you know, reflect local economic imbalances between savings and investment. And the simple truth is that China saves too much. At 53% of GDP, China's national savings are unprecedented for any emerging country. They finance the equally unprecedented 46% of GDP, which goes into capital investment. Of course, the difference is equivalent to the external surplus. So there's not much the Chinese authorities can do about the demographic causes of uh, high investment and high savings. For example, the dependency ratio of children and people aged over 60 on the working age population has plunged from 68 to 38% uh, in one generation. Um, so, there's nothing they can really do about that. Nor can they do anything about the behavioral effects of rising private home ownership, perhaps the biggest uh, revolution in China uh, of, of private home ownership ever recorded. Um, and nor can they do anything about the unintended consequences of the one child policy. Uh, for example, it's reckoned that about 10% of Chinese uh, young men uh, will never find a marriage partner. And that this proportion um, will rise to, okay, girls, you just get cracking on the plane. Um, And that this proportion will rise to about 20% by 2020 and continue to rise. This is kind of, as I said, one of the unintended consequences. And the reason it's of some relevance to the savings problem is because it's generally regarded, or at least Chinese sociologists think, that young men without families tend to save more than uh, their counterparts. However, there are many things which obviously the authorities can address, including the weakness of aggregate wage income, especially in rural areas. Uh, Remember 780 million people still depend for their livelihoods on rural uh, life and activities. They can do things about low levels of social security coverage and benefits. Uh, They can uh, address some of the issues of an inflationary property market which makes young people want to save a lot, have to save a lot to get on the property ladder, where have you heard that before? Um, they could address uh, exchange and interest rate issues which i 've already referred to um, there 's a, a lack of a mechanism amongst the in, in corporate governance basically because companies state owned companies don 't pay dividends because there 's no shareholding uh, universe um, Government is the principal shareholder, so it would help if um, if for example companies could distribute their uh, large profits to, to households in some form. Many of these things are actually enshrined in the 12th five-year plan, which uh, is going to be rubber-stamped and approved by the National People's Congress in April next year. Uh, it aims to raise wages. Uh, it aims to increase social security coverage. It aims to raise energy and utility prices. It aims to reform the household registration system, which, as you some of you may know, is called hukau, which is essentially the, the deprivation of uh, health care, social, um, pension rights, which migrant workers have because they can't register, not all of them can register in Chinese cities and towns uh, as residents. Um, however, I think that at the same time as it, it portends to try to do many of these things, it doesn't really demonstrate any radical shift to countenance the vested interests championing championing, uh, the primacy of statist policies that sustain these imbalances in the economy that I've referred to uh, and that suppress endogenous labour income formation. On the RMB itself, which is often uh, the media's kind of favourite focus, um, obviously it's a, a huge political issue, has been, is and will continue to be But there is a danger that we all become kind of obsessive about this. Um, And if we did, I think it could backfire on both the United States and China. Um, In any event, with Chinese inflation that's running about four four times as fast as it is in the United States, the real exchange rate in China is rising already at 4% per annum. And if China allows the nominal rate to keep rising at about 4 or 5% per annum, then obviously, for trade balancing purposes, the real exchange rate adjustment is is already uh, taking place and and really need not be uh, the focus of attention, except of course that lawmakers uh, find it very easy to point a finger using it. The focus should be instead, as I've indicated, on how and why China saves so much and how the savings rate might come down as part of uh, the shift to a more consumer and service producing society. Part of the trouble, as I've hinted here, is that Rebalancing is not really about engineering, it's not really about kind of checking boxes of a kind of an economic agenda, it's more about politics. So 20 years ago, the American economist Manker Olson highlighted how national success is intertwined with the development of vested interests that usually benefit in the long economic expansions and how they often fight to preserve those interests when the expansion falters or reverses. So you might simply call this the money is power problem, in other words those that make the most money are always loath to lose their power. We've got visual, uh, actually very real-time demonstration of that right now in this country but it's all over other western countries as well as we confront this problem in and with the financial services industry. Uh, But it's no less so in China where vested interests have accumulated during this breakneck expansion of the last 20 years, not least In the bureaucracy in companies and among party officials. So put another way, rebalancing in China is also about the transfer of economic power from coastal regions to inland provinces, from cities to the countryside and from companies to consumers. And in the information age perhaps we should also add that it's from state to non-state actors. So if this transfer occurs too quickly or too slowly China's sustained high growth rate, the core of this informal social contract, could easily falter, uh, resulting in instability. This is an intriguing field. People at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences have logged incidents of social unrest at about 90,000 in each of the last four years. And actually quite recently there were also food price riots in some Chinese towns Many of these incidents are quite small and of precious little significance, but one expert there has called them spontaneous venting incidents uh, to convey the idea that there is a rising proportion of them. Citizens are literally rising up, as it were, against corruption, injustice and the deprivation of rights. Well, we shall see uh, how good China's leaders management skills are as its citizens become better off and its private sector entrepreneurs become more vocal. Maybe the Communist Party's pragmatism to date is a harbinger of some form of consultative, uh, we could use the term democracy maybe, I don't really mean it in the sense that we understand it, but uh, something that would differ very sharply from uh, what has been in China and what we have in our world. But then again as China becomes more modern, urban, prosperous, maybe Uh, the clamour for political rights will grow. In any event, as I've suggested strongly, institutions, quality institutions, are going to become increasingly important, uh, and that jars, in my view, with a hierarchy that places the party above the government, the government above the judiciary. Interesting times ahead, no doubt, and fully in keeping with the infamous uh, Confucian curse. The penultimate topic I want to deal with uh, here this evening has to do with uh, it's a little bit of a kind of a speciality on some of the things that I've been talking about institutions and inflation, I've mentioned at some length. I'd like to talk a little bit about emerging market demographics as well, uh, because it's also part of one of my great interests, um, and which matter increasingly actually to economies, policy makers, and investors. One immediate way in which we're all becoming aware of emerging market demographics, of course, is the impact of a rising labour force, longevity, and per capita incomes on the demand and cost, or demand for, and cost of food and energy and resource prices. So, uh, just to repeat some of the mantras that probably some of you are very familiar with, nearly all of the extra three billion people who will inhabit the earth in the next 40 years will be born in emerging and developing countries. And as in the West, their populations will live longer, too, uh, with life expectancy at birth rising from 67 uh, currently to about 76 or 77 uh, by mid-century. Now, although energy and industrial commodity prices will always be hostage to economic cycles, uh, it's worth noting, I think, some of the factors that have rocked the world's food supply and demand balance. Um, and actually, it's something which obviously we're always conscious of in rich countries as well, although I suspect more of the problem may be due to supermarket margins than actual anything else. Anyway, we we tend to um, spend a much lower proportion of our income and our budgets on food than they do in, obviously, than poorer communities and poorer countries do. Uh, But the World Bank reckons that, and the Food and Agricultural Organization, that food demand is going to rise by about 50% in the next 20 years. Um, But it will not matched by a 50% increase in supply because there are a variety of problems which are at least for the moment um, impairments uh, which, which are not easily resolvable. One of these is just the, the lack of investment in new uh, R&D and crop yields, uh, though presumably one day maybe GM crops will solve that problem. Second, uh, certainly low stocks of grains, oil seeds, and many other agricultural commodities is a problem uh, which make prices of course instantly sensitive to bad and random weather events like with those we've seen in Queensland, Brazil, Sri Lanka, for example. Um, we have the additional problem of agflation, which uh, essentially is the way that people describe situation that arises when countries like Ukraine, Russia, uh, Pakistan, Argentina, slap on export bans on key agricultural commodities because they want to preserve or conserve supplies, obviously, for their local populations, but in so doing, of course, they drive up prices for everybody else. Um, And uh, the final one really is a more kind of longer term cumulative factor, which is the the gathering deterioration in soil quantity because of urbanization and soil quality because of the progressive use of pesticides and fertilizers and because of growing water scarcity. So today there are about 21 countries that are classified as uh, water shortage or water scarce. Um, And by by 2025, uh, the World Bank reckons there are about 48 countries in this category, including China, by the way, which is suffering terrible drought in its major wheat growing provinces this year, Um, and that these water shortages will affect over 3 billion people. The demand that's driving up crude oil and other energy prices up over time also aggravates, of course, the cost and supply metrics for food and water. So we kind of need two green revolutions, one based around clean energy, of course, and the other around more productive agricultural uh, distribution and production, irrigation techniques, water preservation, and so on. Looking at the other and more traditional area of demographics um, celebrates the the slow change in the age structure uh, in society in many Asian countries, such as India, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Vietnam, as well as in most of Latin America, Turkey, the Middle East, and Africa. For these countries, the so-called demographic dividend, that's the boost to growth and consumption and savings that happens when child dependency is falling, working age population is expanding, but long before the old age population starts to grow, uh, that dividend is there to be banked, uh, certainly for another 20 to 30 years and actually it's a core strength of course of the long-term potential of emerging markets. But in China, Russia, Eastern Europe, the original tiger economies, for example, the demographic is pretty much, dividend has pretty much been spent. In Russia and Eastern Europe, the population is declining and aging rapidly at the same time. In Russia's working age population, for example, peaked about 10 years ago. is predicted to fall by about 45 million by the middle of the, d- the century. Korea, South Korea, will be older than Japan by 2030. And Japan's already the oldest country on on the uh, planet. Uh, Taiwan, Singapore and Hong Kong will be closing in fast. The fastest ageing country in the planet, however, as I'm sure you're aware, is China, which is not the oldest, but the fastest ageing. And it will be older, certainly, than the United States by 2050 on every important demographic metric. But I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes comparing and contrasting China and India, which represent opposite ends of the spectrum, In terms of emerging market demographics. If we just look at India first, in India a third of the population is aged under 14. As these kids uh, mature into young workers, the working age population will rise from about 780 million to a billion by 2030. So the increase alone will be bigger than the entire working age population of Western Europe today. Uh, India in fact is exactly in that sweet spot where child dependency is falling, but a marked rise in old age dependency is still 25 years away. So these demographic riches could actually catapult India to the top of the world's growth league, building on what is already uh, a very dynamic private sector. Or these demographic riches could become a social nightmare if instead of job creation, India were to languish with widespread poverty, illiteracy and unemployment. The official rate of unemployment in India is 7%, but there is a 27% incidence of uh, poverty, that is to say below $2 a day, amongst anybody who has a job, whether it's an hour a week or 45 or 50 hours a week, uh, with the 15 to 29 year old cohort, the worst affected. And this cohort actually is going to rise by 30 million people, or by 10% uh, in the next 10 years alone. So India's biggest challenge really is, surely, to enable its government and its legal system to preside over massive employment creation, especially in labour intensive and badly needed infrastructure, uh, but also in manufacturing, in retailing, financial services, and they could start, for example, with trying to reform many of their labour laws most of which date back to 1948 and independence, and which now number almost 150 across the entire country, governing, hiring, and firing. A lot of companies that would like to settle up or set up in India, like to do business there, find it very disincentivized from doing so, simply because it's just bureaucratically too complicated um, and sometimes corrupt. China, on the other hand, um, is in a very different um, space it can still tap a diminishing but still fairly large pool of migrant labor, about 70 to 80 million people, especially if the hukou system of household registration is relaxed more significantly in coming years. But China's also a hair's breadth away from a long-term decline in its youth population. I mean, not just a relative decline, an absolute decline, it's a youth depopulation. And a few years away from a long-term decline in its working age population. The number of over 60s in China will grow by three times, from 12 to about 33% of the population by 2050. In Shanghai, for example, which I've just been to, uh, 22% of the registered resident population is aged over 60. By 2020, this proportion will have gone to about a third, which would make it the same as the whole of Japan. The old age dependency ratio, that is over 60s as a proportional relative to the working age population, is forecast to double. Uh, to 22% by 2030, and by five times by the middle of the century. In other words, look at it this way. There are 10 workers supporting each over 60 uh, re- resident today. Um, by 2050, they'll only be about two and a half. Uh, and the speed with which China is aging could easily be revised up when we know the results of last year's national census. So the official census basically has China's fertility rate at about 1.8% children per woman of childbearing age, but these numbers don't really stack up with the independent inquiries made by people who have looked at birth control, clinic records, hospital records, school enrollments and so on, um, where they believe that actually the fertility rate may be much lower, maybe 1.4, 1.5, which doesn't alter the conclusions, it just alters the speed with which the country is aging. In any event, uh, I mean my work suggests that by 2015, we should, be, we should start to expect to see at least the beginnings of some of the 2% decline in trend growth, which is uh, predictable on the basis of China's demography. And of course, the authorities will have their work cut out, managing the consequences of rapid aging. Even if per capita incomes rise to $13,000 by 2020, as I suggested before, this will still represent a fraction Of the per capita income which the United States and other western countries achieved a few decades ago when their old age dependency was the same as China's will be in 2020. So this is a a unique, uh, well aging as such is unique in the sense of uh, age structure increase. So we've never, mankind has never been through an experience before where we've had rising longevity and declining fertility simultaneously. Um, And certainly we've never seen an example before in our current universe of countries where we've got a country with such a low per capita income that's going through the same process as richer countries. So how that will all resolve itself, of course, um, is um, not not easy to predetermine. The shift in demography will clearly fuel uh, endless demands for deeper and wider social security provision. And certainly a requirement to expand China's pension assets, which probably account for little more than about 6 or 7% of GDP totally, maybe about 3 or 4% in terms of the national state retirement fund. (coughs) Also, because rapid aging will have very significant social, family, and family enterprise repercussions, uh, exacerbated as it is by the proliferation of childless couples and one-child families, and also by chronic gender imbalance, which has kind of undermined Mao Tse Tung's observation that women hold up half the sky. 25% of urban adults aged 25 to 49 grew up as single children, uh, but this proportion is expected to have reached 40% uh, in about 10 or 15 years, and maybe 60% by 2030. Assuming that they marry, and if they just have one child or no children, China's celebrated reputation for family care and family enterprise will atrophy. Moreover, the proportion of young men never likely to find a marriage partner, as I indicated before, um, will certainly have some, uh, not just kind of economic issues, as I've suggested, but it's already having some rather unsavory uh, social uh, phenomena as well. So China's demographics are unique, um, certainly for a low-income country and form part of an uncertain and certainly likely to be volatile economic tapestry. So I'm coming to a conclusion and uh, I began by suggesting that great economic and political shifts tend to generate consequences for which we're often unprepared and to which occasion we may rise or we may not. Which leads me really to some final words about what we may call, uh, what I call, a new world disorder in contrast to the new order Heralded by our previous Prime Minister, poignantly, if prematurely, at the G20 summit in London in April 2008. <coughs> at the time, of course, as you may remember, the entire global system was at risk from the financial crisis, and the G20 countries, <coughs> excuse me, notably China, could agree quite easily about what to do about it. And China and other non Eastern European emerging markets were fortuitously in a financially robust position to be able to counter and overcome what they call in China the North Atlantic crisis. But since then, the economic interests and priorities of developed and emerging markets have diverged sharply, and over the last year or so, we have seen countless examples of the failure of global cooperation with the proliferation of various different types of protectionism that I outlined. These span uh, trade in goods, agricultural commodities, currency arrangements, capital flows, regulatory and fiscal discrimination in company policies, and so on. Last September, before and at the G20 summit meeting in Seoul, the Federal Reserve's policy of quantitative easing, uh, otherwise known as QE2, um, which actually seems to be having some success as far as it goes, uh, was vilified by China and Germany and others as being clueless and as America playing Russian roulette with the global financial system. Of course, these complaints came on top of other developing tensions over access to and control over agricultural and industrial resources in the Middle East and Africa by sovereign wealth funds and state-owned companies. But the reality, (coughs) I think, is that US, Japan, Europe, and the BRICS all have their eyes on domestic challenges and issues the spirit of globalisation, upon which all of them depend to some degree, is slowly being snuffed out, I fear, in a global leadership vacuum. If, as Ian Bremmer and Nuriel Rubini say in a recent foreign affairs feature, which you can find on the web, we've gone from a G7 to a G20 and now to a G0 world, all in the space of about two years, where no one has the will or the capacity to be fully engaged, we might ask A, whether the multilateral but US-led Bretton Woods system and legacy was just a one-off in terms of history, and B, whether it's even possible to have a stable world order in the absence of a benign global hegemon. If the laissez-faire Washington consensus as we knew it has withered, and the state capitalist Beijing consensus is stillborn, except to a handful of relatively insignificant or sometimes dubious countries... It's hard to imagine how we can set an actionable and agreed agenda when it comes to some of the big issues of the coming decade, including global financial regulation, supervision, trade imbalances, the role of the dollar, uh, perhaps other instruments in the financial system, food, energy, security, climate change, and so on. For the foreseeable future, I think that the United States can still lay claim to at least a half a dozen positive attributes from its point of view, Uh, Obviously, it's military supremacy and it's favorable geography in the form of two oceans either side and largely friendly neighbors. Secondly, it is rich in resources uh, such as food. It's got the Great Lakes for water, metals, oil and gas resources, uh, which in a resource tight world might matter. It has innovative strengths, especially in new technologies. Um, We might not like uh, the reasons that these are being developed, but uh, they are being developed in genetics, molecular and supercomputers, synthetic self producing organisms, nanotechnology, robotics, and a host of other things that probably will define uh, the future. Fourthly, its demographics are uh, challenged, of course, because of healthcare, uh, which they haven't really found uh, well, they found the Part of the answer to that, but obviously part of the United States doesn't accept it. Um, But certainly in terms of its underlying demographics, uh, it's certainly in a much stronger position than other Western countries, and China, by the way. And it still has uh, pretty significant immigration and labor markets that, generally speaking, still work. Uh, Fifthly, it has an unrivaled reputation, of course, for high-quality higher education. If you look through the top 500 universities, as I'm sure you know, apart from LSE, of course, uh, most of them are American. You have to go down to number 52 before you find Tsinghua University. Uh, and not last but not least, uh, the basic structure of its legal and social institutions and capital markets uh, are kind of precisely what you do need for uh, change in the future, even if its politics um, suck, uh, to use a technical term. Um, <coughs> against those uh, half a dozen advantages, of course, there are four horsemen of disorder, if not the apocalypse. Uh, the most important and the most dangerous, of course, is the explosive issue of reducing public debt uh, ahead of the surge in healthcare spending, which will come about uh, in due course. Uh, the second is that because of that, they may strangle R&D and education and higher education as well. Uh, I'm not saying they will, but there's obviously a risk of financial strangulation um, and neglect actually, because if you look at a, there's a recent OECD report that ranks all of the OECD countries in primary and secondary schools, uh, in primary school education in the United States, they, they come 25th in maths in the OECD and 17th in science, which obviously not good uh, under any, uh, any yardstick. Um, Clearly the United States thirdly could lose technological advantages further in areas other than uh, clean air and low carbon technology and energy capture. Um, And like us actually in the UK, I mean the Americans basically are scratching around looking for new growth drivers. Housing and financial services are a busted flush um, and they certainly aren't going to contribute much to prosperity in uh, the foreseeable future. And we kind of know what we think we'd like to do in the future, but actually you kind of need the enabling uh, infrastructure, facilities, nurturing of uh, of a benign government, I think, to, uh, to create the kind of industrial policy where we can actually find where our competitive advantages lie and actually slot into that system, you know, rebalancing world economy and create jobs. So I think if the United States fails to rise to these challenges, it would have uh, dark consequences, I fear, for all of us in the years and the next couple of decades ahead. Um, the most pressing issue uh, for the United States, as I said, is indeed here. And in fact, as President Obama opined in the State of the Union address recently, was to is to reboot, which is to enhance infrastructure, education and innovation. And also of course to avert this instability that's threatened by the budgetary and public debt uh, morass. Of course there's an inconclusive debate as yet at least about how these goals are to be achieved best and especially about whether austerity is needed fast and furious or whether it comes better in measured and piecemeal form. But everybody would agree I think that it's far better to choose how and when to strike that balance than to allow inertia and indecision to lead to yet another dramatic financial crisis in a year or two years' time, uh, which would certainly, in America's case, force austerity in a most uh, harsh way, exacerbate instability at home and abroad, and probably cause the Americans to disengage further still from a benign global role, which my own view is that only it can provide. So on that happy note, um, thank you very much for listening.
0: Well, thank you, thank you very much for a wide-ranging and far-reaching uh, analysis focused, of course, above all on China. But I think there's a, as it were, a sting in the tail at the end, which is, you know, you see in some senses the problems that China faces and the disadvantages it potentially suffers are the, in a sense, they are, Going to help the West in a sense in the competitive struggle in the future, and that the advantages that the US still has may still be significant enough for regeneration of of the world order that you and we have known for some time, and hence it may not fragment in the way that many have suggested. Um, There are many issues here on the table, and um, uh, to do, of course, with the analysis of contemporary analysis of China relationship between China, India, the position of the West above all the US in all these trends, and I'm sure there are many questions. So we like to take questions in clusters, if that's all right. Okay. And uh, I will uh, just, you just raise your hand. We've got mics around, yes. So let's take uh, three or four questions. Yes, the lady there with a hand up, yeah. Let's take the mic straight over there. you just keep your hands up, then I can see where you are.
2: Thank you very much for a very interesting talk. I'm quite interested in the statement which you said that China saves too much because in contrast it's been said that the way West saves too little and lives beyond its means. So is there an optimum, optimum level of savings that um, people should adhere to around the globe and what would that sort of be?
0: Thank you. Yeah, gentlemen gentleman behind you. A few rows up.
3: I was um, intrigued by a point you made earlier in your speech about debt destruction because um, I didn't feel you sort of cover much on that. Um, that seems to run counter to sort of various things that uh, say the World Economic Forum's recent report which seems to be encouraging even greater debt and that the world should take on trillions, trillions of dollars of more debt um, and that actually the last 90 years or so seem to be a symptom of um, an inability for individuals, corporations, even governments to renege on debt. I know that Andrew Holdane of the Bank of England has sort of written on that subject, such that it seems that, that you can't either nationally or internationally renege on debt now and that creditors really aren't sharing the pain. And so, particularly with the likes of bank bailouts and austerity for the public, I don't really see that as debt destruction.
0: Thank you. Um, There's a question down here. Any more, ones? Any more hands? Yes, two here. Let's take your two questions, and I'll take one at the front. That'll be a, enough for the first one. Yeah. Uh,
2: I noticed you didn't talk about militancy. I'm oh, sorry. Um, I noticed you didn't talk...
0: <laughs> <laughs> has to be close to you. <laughs> oh,
2: okay. I noticed you didn't talk too much about militancy, and as militancy? As India and China become increasingly increasingly successful, will they too become more militant and try to extend their sphere of influence beyond their means?
0: May not be beyond their means if they are successful. Yeah, behind you.
1: Thank you. Maybe beyond my competence to answer that, but anyway.
4: You're right. Uh, you mentioned Manker Olson. Uh, and I think he also coined the expression urosclerosis to explain how mature European democracies were growing slower because of
3: vested interests. And, you know, China is not a mature democracy, but do you see the same, I mean, do you see symptoms of urosclerosis in China as well?
0: That's four questions. We'll just take one more down here, and I'm sure there'll be another round. Yes, Robert Wade at the front.
4: Thanks. Um, The protests in Egypt make very clear that um, in Egypt and in much of the rest of the world, there's a massive problem of unemployment and underemployment going from university graduates down to day laborers. Everybody is saying, I don't have a job. Everybody in Egypt who's in the squares is saying, I'm here because I don't have a job. You have uh, several times implied, at least, that you believe um, strongly in free trade. So the question is, how do you think that um, developing countries can um, generate labor-intensive activities, (laughs) especially, for example, in manufacturing, in the presence of um, the Chinese powerhouse uh, able to land manufactured imports um, at prices that simply undercut local suppliers? How can they provide labour-intensive industrialization without using trade protection?
1: Five. Over to okay. you. Right. So if I answer your questions, and or at least I think I'm answering your questions, and you think he didn't answer my question at all, um, then it's probably because I either can't read my own handwriting or I haven't gotten the point, so come back. So the first question was uh, about... China saving too much, the West too little. Is there an optimum level of savings? I, I don't know if there is an optimum level of uh, savings. Um, but what we do know is that uh, the, the level of imbalances, uh, global trade imbalances, which reflect, as I said before, savings imbal- and investment imbalances anyway. Um, Uh, I mean, you know, it wouldn't matter so much if, uh, let me just sort of uh, go off on a little bit of a tangent there. You know, India is uh, kind of a classic example of a country that saves an awful lot. Uh, I mean, the the national savings, gross domestic savings in India are not as high as they are in China, but it's quite high, it's about something of the order of 36%, 38%, which is probably about as high as it has been in India um, during the last 20, 25 years. Um, But its investment rate is even higher. Uh, So, actually, India runs small, well, relatively restrained external deficits. So, in a sense, I'm not saying this would be the right way to think about it, but if China saves 53% of GDP and it invested 53% of GDP, then, just as a mathematical example, then the problem probably wouldn't be as pronounced obviously there would be a problem because once you start investing close to 50 percent of gdp then you're probably running close to the point where you're going to have too much investment but the the direct answer to your question is that that what we know from the last 10 or 15 years is that you know the savings gross national savings in western countries particularly the united states and the united kingdom did fall too far too fast and that it rose too far too fast in china and there must be there has to be some kind of framework which I suppose the IMF, uh, you know, might be the appropriate organisation to determine and to, uh, you know, in terms of uh, monitoring and surveillance, um, to to determine when these imbalances are beginning to get out of control. But it's always contingent, obviously, on countries' uh, national governments being willing to take the the measures uh, to. Um, uh, you know, domestically to actually bring their balances back. So I, I, I'm not going to give you, and I don't think I can, anybody can give you a quantitative answer. Uh, probably, if external surpluses and deficits were held within somewhere around two to three percent of GDP, either side, certainly for the major countries, uh, I think a lot of economists will probably regard that as, you know, a satisfactory outcome. Uh, I mean there'll always be examples when it could be higher and lower for brief periods of time but but managing those imbalances is clearly what we we need to try to do um, and uh, which the g20 so far have have not been successful in in sanctioning um, Debt destruction. Uh, well, uh, uh, the gentleman make a, I'm trying to find you in the audience. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I mean, you made a, it as a classic point, you know, I mean, we, we, you know, we didn't allow, you know, the Austrian school to hold sway uh, during this crisis. Um, and, you know, it is certainly arguable that we went too far um, <clears throat> in uh, bailing out the banks or, you know, making sure that everybody could survive and certainly... If you look at the, how the sovereign debt crisis in Europe is playing out, um, the extraordinary lengths to which some governments have gone to impose on taxpayers penalties which should have been borne by bank creditors is uh, uh, mind-boggling, to say the least. Um, so, I accept your point that we we haven't made uh, you know as much progress with the destruction of debt that we probably will over the course of the next you know 10 years or so. Um, uh, which is a problem, um, you know. And if you look at the sort of the the essence of uh, just in terms of you know the debt ratio of the household sector, the debt ratio of the. Government sector clearly, you know, we've made very, very little progress in in terms of reduction. Bank liabilities. Can I just
0: stop you there one moment? Isn't that another reason why, given this huge debt overhang, why we might well expect, contrary to a lot of your emphasis, that Asia will continue to grow very rapidly? The, dis- the, diff- the differential in growth rates in West and East will continue to be very, very marked. And that uh, far from producing a situation where the Chinese, you know, risk sclerosis, as it were, well or s- various strains, it is the West that is struggling with this debt that is going to find it very, very hard to innovate in the future and find the capital necessary for new stages of technology manufacturing.
1: Just yeah. To I mean, I think, uh, personally, I mean, I, I think certainly uh, for, the, you know, for the foreseeable future, I think, you know, our... Uh, The the work, our work, we've got our work cut out to do that. And um, I mean, it's exactly kind of almost carte blanche, as it were, for for China and India and other countries to grow, you know, as quickly as they can or want to, subject only to the constraints which I mentioned about rising inflation. Um, But I'll I'll just, uh, I'll I'll come back to the um, the militancy question in a second. But um, since uh, you asked the question of the Eurosclerosis, that was you, wasn't it? um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I don't really see, I mean, I, I, I can see the, uh, you know, obviously the relevance today of eurosclerosis which is, uh, you know, obviously the difficulties that, and the torturous processes that European leaders and governments are going through, trying to resolve, you know, who should do what about, you know, imbalances within Europe and the debt crisis and so on. Clearly, that's, that doesn't describe the Chinese economy in that sense. But there are vested interests within the Communist Party and there certainly are very deeply divided factions um, and power has accumulated in cities and in companies and in coastal regions and if if they really want to rebalance the economy over the next 10 to 15 years then that power has to shift. So the, the vested interest problem is there even though the economic parallel isn't. Um, on the militancy i um I, uh, i'm not really sure i'm you know don't really know how to answer that i mean uh, uh just as an observer you know the the idea that all of the emerging markets are in one corner and all the western countries in the other is you know i mean it's a delusion to think that that's a that's a reality clearly we have mm-hmm. lots of examples of uh, kind of infighting as it were not in a literal sense but um uh, and india for example has uh, repeatedly during this last year made um uh, complaints public complaints from senior government officials about this string of pearls so called which uh, the Chinese are uh, supposedly building ports you know all around the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea to facilitate access to shipping lanes and you know secure access to raw materials and so on and so forth um and and the Indian government the Indian Prime minister has actually complained that you know China is is, is something like you know trying to expand at our expense or something like that. Um, So there are, um, you know, there are, when you say talk about spheres of influence, I mean, I think that's that's a case well put, uh, you know, from an Indian perspective, also from a Japanese perspective, if you remember the incident last year over the fishing boat, um, in which the uh, Japanese Foreign Minister uh, asked the Japanese Parliament, the Diet, uh, you know, rhetorically, are we now beginning to see the essence of China, He, he asked. Um, and, um, of course, the appeals from some of the ASEAN countries to the United States, you know, don't leave the Pacific, we need you here, you know, kind of speaks about kind of tensions within and between countries which quite difficult to disentangle. But, I, I mean, I don't really see if by militancy you meant a, a, you know, a really aggressive foreign policy. Um, I mean, I, I don't really see that in the case of India. And I, I see a very assertive foreign policy in China's case, but not what I would call aggressive at this point. Can I, can I, before you go on to the
0: fourth point, yeah. just, just add something to that. Danny Kwar recently gave a lecture here on shifting sort of geography of economic power. And, and what he essentially argues, the shift in economic gravity in the earth is clearly markedly to the east, the technological developments in China are, you know, are much against expectations, or some expectations are worse, accelerating very remarkably. So you see huge development economically and technology and so on, and yet, the Chinese military remains very small. The investment in Chinese uh, military relative to the West is, is very insignificant, Relatively, I mean relatively minor, not insignificant, minor. The Americans spend 10 times plus more per annum on the military than the Chinese. The Chinese don't have a single workable aircraft carrier at this present time. Chinese fighters' uh, technology is years, decades, if not behind the Americans. In other words, this doesn't look like, what it looks like is resources are being pumped into economic, technological and now somewhat social development but it doesn't yet look like an economic power looking to become a major hegemonic military state. I mean I just wonder what you think of that.
1: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I think that's broadly speaking correct but for you know maybe just the fact that things are changing and you know when uh, Robert Gates went to see uh, uh, the Chinese recently you know there was this sort of incident where he was Surprised, and supposedly Hu Jintao was surprised by the revelation of this stealth fighter that was kind of revealed on the day, and supposedly reveals something about the state of uh, we don't really know very much about it, but the state of relationships between you know the civilian government and the PLA, and um, you know my antennae don't stretch that deeply, but um, you know it would be surprising if China did not choose to turn some of its economic might. To some degree, into enhanced military and naval capability, but um, it, it's a long, long process. I agree. Uh, and Robert, finally, <laughs> um, so you asked about uh, clearly about unemployment and um, and about whether countries should, and I think they should. Uh, you know, especially the poorest among them, be you know entitled to kind of develop behind trade barriers, agreed trade barriers, and some kind of structure in which a, you know, that would be kind of permitted as kind of an international, um, uh, well, by international agreement, um, but also where, for example, the IMF could uh, actually act as a kind of a guarantee or as a backstop against uh, the risk that a lot of developing countries fear or feel that they have, they ha- they, you know, they're not allowed to run trade deficits anymore. That's kind of forbidden. Um, And that was a kind of a distorted lesson that I think a lot of countries drew from the Asian crisis in 1997, 1998, which is the world is too dangerous for developing countries to run trade deficits because when the capital comes out, you know, we're all kind of screwed. Um, And and so it's just, you know, one of those kind of anomalies of the world in 2010, not just 2010, but in recent years, where the poor, um, you know, not the poorest, but amongst the poorer per capita income countries of the world actually generate trade surpluses and lend their excess uh, revenues to rich countries what's all that about? that's not the way I learned economics, you know, and, and it's not kind of the way that it should work um, and I think it's uh, it's a distortion uh, which I think ideally, you know, you'd, you'd need to have, uh, you know, some a Bretton Woods type of arrangement to try to uh, provide some kind of backstop, financial backstop to developing countries that says it's okay to run trade deficits. You know, nobody's going to worry about it, and if they do, you know, we'll backstop you. Um, but it's also, you know, indicative of um, the, the frustrations which some emerging countries have that, uh, you know, the sort of complaints and criticisms about China's exchange rate actually come from the BRICs, for well, from Brazil in particular, but also from a number of other countries who, fear, who feel that they're being... Um, uh, you know that they can't do anything to allow their exchange rates to go up because China won't do the same. So they have to erect capital controls and so on and so forth. So, but I, I concur. You know, and I think it is uh, certainly uh, kind of a new economy uh, agenda to, um, uh, to to understand that actually development, you know, needs more than just kind of simple laissez-faire rules as we have. Thank you. Um, we have
0: time for a few more questions maybe just uh, uh, another three or four are there those of you um, I can see some of you are voting with your feet and saying <laughs> it was a great evening but dinner and I'm hungry uh, uh, but there's still time for those who want to press further questions and there's still a book signing which we'll go to in just a few minutes so I hope this is the people queuing for your book at uh, the moment so let's just, any further questions? yes Gentlemen, back
2: now. Thank you, sir, for your speech. I just want to ask a question. Which uh, bit louder? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Sorry, I I want to ask a question which pertains to the economic relations between China and the United States. Um, uh, It seems that the exchange rate is a big problem, but I think um, the perceived change in China's policy towards uh, foreign direct investments in China is also causing greater concerns in Western communities, uh, including the America- American investors in China. Uh, do you think um, in the long run, uh, which is the more serious challenge or problem for the Americans, the exchange rate problem or the um, China's gradual shift in its policy towards foreign direct investment, which is likely to make it makes it more difficult for foreigners to
0: uh, make profit in China.
1: Right. I think um, – uh, uh, d- did you want to take another one? Yeah, we'll take another one. Okay.
0: Just, just, we'll just take just two or three more, <coughs> and then we'll bring the proceedings.
3: <coughs> but my question My question is, uh, My question question is. concerns on the saving issue as well. Like you mentioned that China saves too less. Also, you mentioned that China is facing significant – Inflation pressure. Also, China is getting, getting aged like rapidly. Um, given China currently doesn't have a well function social welfare system, how do you think the authority may resolve this complex?
0: Thank you. And the question behind oh, we look, yes, we have, let's have three more brief questions. Yeah, and then the mic, can we have the mic going to the back? There's two
4: people at the back. Um, I'll try. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, I guess. Um, so as China becomes more of a competitor for United States, and is not uh, maybe it becomes more of a competitor than an advantage, do you see US possibly trying to do some kind of preemptive power move, be it economic or military, to curtail that? And if it does, then what might it be, like some kind of partial default or engineering inflation with indexation to your own citizens, but not foreigners, or something along those lines.
0: Okay, just two questions at the back. Can you go, can you two be really brief? Really brief.
1: RMB as an international trading currency, yes or no?
0: <laughs> Genius. Oh. <laughs> we'll come. Come anytime you want.
4: I'll try to be concise. Um, you mentioned total factor productivity um, is what. Will increase in that will drive sustainable growth models for countries. What is there incentivizing countries to do that, to increase their TFP right now? I don't think there's much.
0: And finally, gentlemen at the front. Thank you.
1: Um, a, a quick two-pronged one. Um, given the uh, tension between a lot of national economic issues that we face, but as well as the global, uh, the complexity of global challenges you've outlined, uh, do you think we can
0: Do you think that uh, the the attention um, that is necessary to face these global challenges will be given to them? Um, And um, just very quickly, you mentioned kind of the the declining growth of the
1: West, um, um, and I also think this might might be a a trend globally whereby GDP growth will slow down as technology improves. do you think that there will be a sort of plateauing globally uh, over the next fifty, hundred years? Uh, is this going to be a natural phenomenon, and should we be looking to broader measures of um, social um, benefit, like happiness and stuff like that? All Thank, you. Thank, you.
0: Thank you. You've got uh, five minutes. <laughs> it's good. It's, we need the same discipline. Uh, yes, no, maybe, up perhaps.
1: there. Okay. Um, <clears throat> right. Oh, sorry. Now, okay. So the first one was uh, something about I think the. Um, uh, <clears throat> about foreign investment in China right and and uh, so so my uh, certainly talking to companies uh you know particularly european and american companies in their home soil and uh, and in china and certainly looking at some of the survey evidence which is done by local chambers of commerce in beijing for american and european companies that operate there um the Overwhelming response. I mean, there's been a big change in the last 10 years, uh, and now what the companies kind of complain about most is it's just not a level playing field. We have to give our technology away, but we get discriminated against this was kind of part of the the backdrop to the summit meeting recently between Hu Jintao and President Obama. I think they care about that much more than they care about the exchange rate. But as I indicated, I think you know it's it's a very it, it, uh, it's much easier for politicians to basically use the exchange rate and say they're cheating. Um, and of course, they do that and um and I think it's you know it has become obsessive actually geithner Tim geithner, the u s treasury secretary, to his credit, has certainly backed away from that uh, in in no small measure in the last three or four months, which i think is is good because the discussion needs to be on different issues um, okay, so then we had something about um china's welfare system um and I, I think increasing or you know broadening and expanding the welfare system, particularly in rural areas where People tend to save, particularly uh, a lot. Um, actually, is um, I mean, it is recognised as a as a you know uh, something. It's an agenda item, and they want they want to try to do that. Um, and there have been uh, I mean, it's not as though you know people are asleep. I mean, there are certainly during the last three or four years, in particular, um, real attempts to try to kind of I mean, not kind of repair the iron rice bowl problem, which was abandoned in. The late uh, in early 1980s, um, but to to try and kind of uh, build social security, starting in urban areas, uh, spanning it out into kind of rural areas. But of course, it's a very very slow process. Only less than 10% of rural residents basically are covered by the welfare system, and probably no more than about 45, 48% of urban residents. And the, and the the benefit systems obviously aren't that generous yet. Um, but I guess you know it's something that will come, but it is a charge on the state. So some at some point, quite soon, the, the distribution of government spending between capital projects and infrastructure and transfers is clearly, there's going to have to be a shift or China's going to have to start borrowing uh, a lot more money. Uh, thirdly, um, uh, China-US competition, uh, the chances of some sort of preemptive, I thought you were going to say preemptive strike, I know you weren't going to say strike, but you mean preemptive economic or financial measures well essentially as it becomes more of a competitor then, uh, then it takes the same part of the production chain if you will in the same groups Right. did, so more a competitor than you want to maybe pre- a yeah, well I think this is, this is uh, I mean I can remember actually uh, you will know, you will almost certainly not have come across it, but I remember writing a paper actually a couple of years ago about you know, as China goes from com- consumer to competitor, and, and that's also speaks to you know the whole sort of idea about how difficult it is to have a dialogue I mean, it's much much easier to have a dialogue where everybody has mutual you know, mutual interests in you know in the sort of you know, consumption, different consumption and production uh, properties but actually as they compete with each other and they see each other as kind of political, geopolitical, economic rivals, technological rivals um, much more difficult relationship and um, um, well, I mean, you could say that, <coughs> you know, that the posture of the United States is certainly to contain, you know, they can't stop the rising China, but they can, they certainly, you could you could find many examples to demonstrate how you might interpret that as, as, as American policy as containing the rise of China. Um, I mean, I don't think it will be particularly successful. Um, sorry? What shape? I don't know, is the answer to that question. I mean... Can probably answer and and question. Since you don't
0: know, we can move on.
1: <laughs> Let's do that. Okay. Um, RMB reserve currency or international trading currency, yes or no? Um, uh, no ish, right? I think that with liberalization of capital restrictions, uh, which is an intention but a very incremental, steady as she goes, don't rock the boat kind of policy, I could imagine by 2025, 2030, that the RMB may be. of global reserves, um, which will make it, you know, a little bit bigger than the yen and the sterling today. So it will become a a more widely traded currency, but I think that it's incompatible. What that means, you know, for China to become a reserve or a big euro type of reserve currency, is China would either have to run trade deficits or would have to so liberalise its capital account um, that, you know, residents could uh, invest freely abroad and it might happen one day, but just not anything that we would call the foreseeable future. And finally, total factor productivity, are they incentivized? Well, I think... Um, I mean, the, the, the proof of the pudding, really, I think, will come in uh, just in the economic, the path of development, you know, at, uh, at $3,000, dollars $6,000 or less. You know, maybe there isn't the incentive to do it, but there certainly is as you get richer and more modern and, you know, economic systems become more, more more complex. If you, if you kind of are sensitive to the aspirations of citizens and to, you know, a rising middle class, then, then you have to make those changes. Well, it
0: remains then for me to say just three things. One is, um, the book
1: is outside this
0: lecture theatre. Secondly, the author will shortly be outside this lecture (laughs) theatre too. And thirdly, of course, it just remains for me to thank you very much for a very engaging lecture, and I look forward to reading the book. Thank you.